Why has ancient Egypt fascinated the world for centuries? Ronald Fritzi traces its long afterlife in his new book, Egyptomania. It's more fun for a person to think, wow, wouldn't, isn't it amazing that Egypt could have been a colony of Atlantis rather than that they put this civilization together themselves. What do Toni Morrison, Truman Capote, Martin Amos, and Eudora Welty all have in common? They're all gathered together in a new anthology of profiles from Vanity Fair magazine, Writers on Writers. Our reviewer, my Times colleague Matthew Schneier, has picked out some of the best. Uh, it was new to me that uh, Marianne Moore had Elizabeth Bishop stand as a, as a kind of lookout while she gave an elephant uh, an illegal haircut. We'll also talk about the 100 notable books of the year, literary news, and what we and other people are reading this week. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm John Williams, filling in for Pamela Paul. The holidays are upon us, and for the book review, that means two things. Our annual holiday books issue is out this week, and in it, we've listed our 100 notable books of 2016. My colleagues, Elida Becker, Barry Gouin, and our usual host, the editor of the book review, Pamela Paul, who, as you will very clearly hear, is suffering from laryngitis, but is game to join us for this segment, are here with me now to talk about some of our favorites. Hi, everybody. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, how are you? Elida, let's start with you on the fiction side of the ledger. Does anything stand out for you among the 50 fiction books that we listed? Well, actually, what I'd like to do is talk about books that are sort of below the radar, the quiet books, um, and sometimes things that are published earlier in the year get ignored mm. later on. Like Elizabeth Stout, I don't think, is going to be ignored. But her book that came out in the spring, uh, My Name is Lucy Barton, is wonderful and very moving and quite subtle about the relationship of this woman and her mother. And there's a similar quiet book that came out just a few months ago called uh, A Life Writer by David Constantine, mm. who's a British writer who is not at all well-known here and ought to be. I don't know whether you saw the movie 45 Years with Charlotte Rampling. I didn't, actually. Um, and it was based on one of his short stories. And it's about the relationship of a husband and wife and how the ripples of the past kind of upset their present life. And The Life Writer is a, has a similar emotional tone. It's about a woman whose husband has died or is dying at the beginning of the book, and she sets out to write his life story and the story of his relationship with a woman he knew before her. Hmm. And it's quite wonderful and moving. Uh, so those are two that, that I would urge people to look at. That's nice. I, I have one that's maybe a little below the radar. Um, it's a small press uh, book called The Gloaming by Melanie Finn, which is a novel about um, a woman who is um, involved in this terrible accident in the Swiss village oh, she yes, lives in. Oh, yes, I read in. that. It's wonderful. Yeah, I yeah. really enjoyed it. And then she, It's a very weird juxtaposition, too. Switzerland and Africa. East Africa. She escapes to yeah. Africa to sort of you know forget the memories of this terrible thing that happened, and there she meets some you know very... Uh, vibrant characters. And yeah, the juxtaposition of this quiet Swiss village where she lived and this policeman she befriended there and then the, the mercenaries and the other people she meets in Africa is just very well balanced. And, and it's that, a tiny press. I mean, $2 it's $2 radio, radio which is, yeah. Uh, yeah, which, which is um, a vital but small <laughs> press. Yeah. And then a, a bigger book that you know got a lot of attention um, was C.E. Morgan's novel, The Sport of Kings, which uh, is, a, is a very big and sweeping novel about um, Kentucky history and horse racing and, and race relations in America. And I, I thought that was very, um, though not perfect, uh, very ambitious and, and had passages of really great writing in it. There were a lot of books that dealt with race 
both on the fiction side and the nonfiction side this year. Yeah, on the nonfiction side especially, there are just a lot of uh, books that got a lot of attention that that focus on that subject. There's Patrick Phillips's Blood at the Root, which uh, is the really stunning story about a um, essentially a racial cleansing in a in a Georgia county in America where they drove out all of their black citizens in the early 20th century, uh, and the town remained all white for 80 years. Uh, there's Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson, which is about the uh, Attica prison uprising in the 1970s and the, the sort of infamous suppression of that uprising. Then we have Sing for Your Life, a book that my mother enjoyed a lot, so I'll, I'll let her have a notable say. Uh, the story of Ryan Speedo Green, who who just overcame, I, I saw him speak about this book earlier this year at an event, and um, just incredible. He overcame this really impoverished childhood to become an opera singer, and that's written by Daniel Bergner. And then two books about the White Working Class in America, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson, and White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America by Nancy Eisenberg. So those are just a few. So staying on the nonfiction side, Barry Gouin, our resident historical expert, what were some books that stood out to you this year? I was struck by the quality of the um, 50 notable books in nonfiction this year. I think there are really a lot of good choices with a great range of style and a concentration. The book I would point to first is not necessarily an easy read, but it's one that's gotten extraordinary reviews in The Economist, The New York Review, and from our own reviewer, Paul Krugman. And it's called The Rise and Fall of American Growth, the U.S. Standard of Living Since the Civil War by Robert Gordon. It sounds a bit dry, and admittedly it is to some degree, but it's eye-opening in a couple of respects. One is that Gordon paints as thorough a picture as I've seen of what it was like to live in the 19th century, going into great detail about housing and sanitation and employment and all that. It's as if we're seeing one of those reality shows in which people are being forced to live like the um, early settlers. Um, And I, I can't think of any other book that's brought home how very different life was in the 19th century from the way it is now. And then the other thing he does, and this is more controversial but but incredibly provocative, is to point out that huge technological changes brought about the change from the way people lived then to the way we live now, and that that era of great technological change may be coming to an end. Another book I want to mention that's that's also a bit of a tome but will be especially interesting to uh, New York readers is City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York by uh, Tyler Anbinder. And this too is a large book but a very thorough one about the fascinating experiences of immigrants coming to New York and the the range of, of different kinds of experiences they had and the range of cultures that they brought to the city and how all of that affected the city. Now, clearly, it's a New York book, but with application far beyond New York and especially given our present focus on immigration, it's a book that I think has enormous relevance today. I'd like to mention two other books that are interesting in different ways. 
Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and the Making of Winston Churchill by Candace Millard. And just as the other two books uh, that I was suggesting are not easy reads, this one could work as airplane reading. It's just a, a great story of daring do. It's about Churchill, the very young Churchill, in the Boer War, he is captured by the Boers. He makes an escape, and what Millard does is to describe the drama of that escape. It involved a, it was a 400-mile trek. He had no food or water, and it's Indiana Jones-like. And it's and hard it's, to find a new angle on Winston Churchill. And I'm that is to think of other than Lincoln, the Civil War, well, World War well, II. Well, that's right. She right. finds these like little undiscovered you know, episodes from the history or the story of major figures like she did with T.R. in River of Doubt. The other book I want to mention in, in a similar vein is Joseph Lollyveld's His Final Battle, The Last Months of Franklin Roosevelt. And what Lollyveld does by framing it in terms of Roosevelt's impending death is to set up a dramatic situation. What can he accomplish? What does he have to hold back on? How will his relationship with his new vice president, Harry Truman, be affected? And all of these questions are set out, as I say, in a very dramatic way, which is rather different from the kinds of books we normally read on FDR. Yeah, it's a ticking clock scenario. There are just a couple of nonfiction books that I'd like to mention uh, that are very, very different from each other. The first is a book called The Return by Hisham Matar, who is Libyan and whose father was uh, disappeared into a Libyan prison in the early 1990s. Matar went back to the country after uh, Gaddafi fell and um, tried to figure out what had happened to his father. And it's kind of a meditation on family and exile and his relationship with his father, who was a, a political dissident, uh, a very influential one. And it's very it's very moving and it's very lyrically written. And the other one is called You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein, which is a series of comic essays by the head writer of Inside Amy Schumer. And um, I had seen Klein do stand-up a few times in New York uh, when I moved here 87 years ago. And um, she's just incredibly funny. And you can see from the pieces why, you know, some of uh, Schumer, who's obviously talented herself, but where some of the tone of the show comes from and some of its uh, grappling with feminist issues and other things. I'd leap in there and say, as between Klein and Schumer, I, I side with you. I recommend the Klein. I, I, of the books. I haven't read Schumer's books. book, which also I, came well, out. Well, I've read year, both right? of them. And, and the, I would recommend Klein Team to Jesse listeners. Yes. What we should also note is that within this list of 100 notable books are our 10 best, which we will talk about on next week's podcast. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, John. Ancient Egypt has been admired by other civilizations since before it was even ancient. The Greeks and Romans looked up to it, and its fingerprints have been on art, politics, pop culture, not to mention the occult, ever since. Ronald Fritzi tracks this rich subject in his new book, Egyptomania, a history of fascination, obsession, and fantasy. And he joins me now from Alabama to talk about it. Hi, Ron. Thanks for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So this is obviously a, a big book about a very vast subject. So before we get into the deep history, let's talk a bit about the more personal entry point for you. What, what are your earliest memories of being interested in the subject of Egypt? I grew up in uh, northern Indiana. I've 
was born in 1951, and so uh, some of my earliest memories would be Saturday night at the movies when they showed the movie The Egyptian. I uh, went to Sunday school and parochial school, so we had the Bible history books with lavish illustrations, and of course, the ones where the children of Israel are in Egypt are, you know, obviously a lot more interesting than when they're out in the desert and that type of thing. So you you, you get hit by those images, and uh, I remember there was uh, the H. Ryder Haggard novel Cleopatra was a classics illustrated, and of course, those were in their heyday when I was a, a child. Those visual images are striking. And then how about later in life as a scholar? How did your professional interest in it develop? I studied uh, Tudor Stuart England at Cambridge University for my Ph.D. with Sir Jeffrey Elton. It's kind of convoluted. I was working on a course for the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, and I came across all these theories of people who came to America before Columbus. And I talked to a publisher about uh, doing a book about that, which I did. Uh, there was Egyptians involved, and that got me interested in the topic of pseudo or alternative history, and I wrote a book about that. What happened was I never was able to fit a lot of the Egyptian material into that book, and so I thought, you know, there's just so much interest in Egypt that this would make a really good topic for a book, and that's how I came to it. Talk about how the book is framed, because this is not, as you say in the introduction, a history of ancient Egypt. It's a history about the way that different people and cultures have thought about ancient Egypt. So talk about the difference between those two things. So what I do is uh, it's 12 chapters, and I have a, a, the first chapter is called The Real Egypt, and that is simply a, just kind of a, a nutshell summary of Egyptian history through ancient times. And then uh, there are seven other chronological chapters, so I have the Greeks and the Hebrews and the Greeks and Romans and chapters on how they viewed Egypt and going into the Middle Ages, both in the Muslim East and uh, in Western Europe, and then on into the Renaissance and the period of Baroque and Enlightenment, and then uh, Napoleon's invasion, the 19th century, then the discovery of the King Tut tomb. Then I switch over to a topical approach, and I have four topical chapters. One is about occult Egypt, Egyptian rites and masonry, or theosophy, or the Rosicrucians, and then there's a chapter on Egypt and alternative history, with Egypt being the source of civilization or an Atlantean colony, Then mm. there's an Afrocentric Egypt chapter, then finally I just do kind of an overview of how Egypt gets portrayed in novels and television series and, and films. As you write, the country was getting tourists as far back as 1500 BC, so this is a very uh, long history we're dealing with. So let's talk about the first group you mentioned, the Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans, who you call the first to engage uh, in Egyptomania. And, you know, what did their version of it look like? Obviously, ours is based on a lot of speculation and um, a lot of sort of design elements and things like that, but what were they fascinated by in the country? The Hebrews had, like, a kind of a, a love-hate relationship with Egypt, because on the one hand, it was a land of refuge. Abraham's journey down there was to avoid a famine, and as was the journey of Jacob and his sons. Finally, you know, the flight to Egypt by uh, Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus. You, so you have that image. But on the other hand, continually hammered throughout is it was a land of bondage. It was a land of oppression, a land of idolatry and that type of thing. Then when you go on to the Greeks, like, obviously the Greeks would go down there and Several things that fascinated them was that mostly in the Greek experience, rivers ran from north to south. The Nile runs from south to north. 
found that kind of odd. And also, they'd not seen anything like the Nile Delta. The huge buildings, the pyramids and the temples that they saw were a source of fascination. For the Romans, you had somewhat the same thing. The Romans were a bit more practical-minded. But the other thing is Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. We, we tend to view Egypt as kind of a marginal country today, but in ancient times it was hugely productive in an agricultural sense and so was very important. But then as time goes on, you get to a point in the book where you talk about the flickering of interest uh, in the subject in the Middle Ages. And I'm wondering about why that decline happened and then, and then how it came back, what sparked reinterest in it. Greeks were much more the people who wrote about Egypt. One of the things that happened was in the medieval West that as time went by, the knowledge of the ancient Greek language was almost extinct. People were not fed by these accounts anymore, and so then you had just the barest knowledge of occasionally where a medieval traveler would go. This is where the idea that the pyramids were the uh, granaries of Joseph, because you had the biblical accounts, because all they basically had in the Western Europe was the biblical account to go by, which is, you know, pretty spotty and spare in terms of its details. You do say that that we know a lot about Egypt, that it's not a place that you know, for how ancient it is, it isn't really enshrouded in all that much mystery to scholars. So why do you think there's that uh, disjunction between, you know, all of the legend and myth that surrounds it and all of the real detail that we know about it? On the one hand, there's a whole lot of the myth and legend and speculative material that was produced over the centuries. That's still out there, and people read it, and it keeps those ideas alive. And on the other hand, it's more fun for a person to think, wow, wouldn't, isn't that amazing that Egypt could have been a colony of Atlantis, uh, <laughs> rather than that they basically show, slowly but surely put this civilization together themselves over time. Atlantis is more fun than real history, I think it's true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to skip all the way ahead to the 20th century now, which is glossing over not only a lot of world history, but a lot of material in your book, and get to the discovery of the tomb of King Tut um, in 1922. So this sort of kickstarts a whole new level of interest in the country. Um, You also write that around this time, there's a sprouting of Egyptian-themed music, architecture, interior design, jewelry, and fashions. So was the discovery of King Tut kind of the beginning of Egyptian kitsch? I'd say, yeah, more so, because the fact of the matter is that there, there was a lot of fascination, like, as a result of Napoleon's expedition, but in the you know, early 20th century, in the 20s, where you have an industrialized mass society, you, you can put out all these little souvenirs and things like that that people can pick up and incorporate it into fashions that people can buy and, uh, you know, furniture and that type of stuff. And I think that, yeah, it really did sprout a lot of that in in people's minds from, like, middle-brow culture in the 19th century, then Egyptomania became, like, mass culture after touch. And getting back to alternative history, because there's um, you've written previous books about that, and, and it's an area that you know really well. Uh, even if they don't have Egyptian roots, a lot of occult groups tend to uh, kind of claim some kind of connection to the country. Uh, do you have any favorite, you know, zany theory that's out there about the pyramids or, or something in particular that people may not know about? One of the things that's interesting is, like, for example, the Masons, they will adopt an Egyptian motif. Now, the fact is... If you talk to mainstream Masons, they really they make no claims about Egyptian knowledge to speak of because theirs is supposed to be a Hiram and the uh, 
Temple of Solomon and that type of stuff. And that's pretty much where it stops for most Masons. But they still like to adopt that. Like I have any big Masonic hall, if it's got several chapters meeting in it, will have uh, one Egyptian-themed room in it. And the furniture will have all those little motifs and uh, that type of stuff and the wings of Horus. And with regard to the pyramids, one of the interesting theories is, you know, back in the, like, early 80s, there was a, in late 70s, there was a pyramid uh, mania going on where there was pyramid power. And the story there is it was this Frenchman who'd been down to visit the pyramid, and he made the claim that when he was in the Great Pyramid, he saw this, like, garbage can that apparently had some dead cats and other creatures but they'd been dead quite a while, but they hadn't rotted. And this got him thinking that there's something about the pyramid that prevents this from happening. And he wrote about it, and at that point that sparked the pyramid power. And the fact of the matter is, I I believe the guy that made that claim actually had never been to Egypt. So it just shows you people will tend to make it up, and it gets spread, and it still continues today. People still remember pyramid power. It's an odd thing to actually claim, because how would people get there to really take advantage of it? It's not something you're going to make a mint off of. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of real history in the book and a lot of uh, imagined history, and we can only really scratch the surface uh, in such a brief interview. But thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it. Oh, my pleasure. The book, again, is Egyptomania, a history of fascination, obsession, and fantasy by Ronald H. Fritzi, reviewed in this week's book review. My colleague Alexandra Alter joins me now with news from the literary world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, John. So this is one of the fun moments in the literary calendar every year, which is the awarding of the Bad Sex in Fiction Award. It's really the best moment in literary <laughs> award season. I mean, the Nobel is great. The Booker is always exciting. The Pulitzer exciting. is kind of thrilling. But, you know, it's the Bad Sex in Fiction Award that I look forward to covering every year. <laughs> this is an award that's given annually by the Literary Review, which is a British literary journal. And it's in its 24th year. Wow. And explicit pornographic works are not eligible. So we're looking at, you know, literary fiction and commercial fiction. And what the judges say they're looking for are really just the most atrocious and egregious uh, descriptions of sexual acts in literature. So this year, the prize, um, if you can call it that, or the... uh... That's always the question is whether or not the authors are glad to get it. I think some have expressed that they were pleased in the past, and others obviously have kept a low profile Taken about some it. some offense, yes. Um, it's more of a punitive, I think, <laughs> award than anything. This year, it went to the Italian novelist Ari De Luca, who won for a quite interesting description <laughs> of a sexual act in his novel, The Day Before Happiness, which is the story of a Neapolitan orphan growing up after World War II. And I can't quote much from the passage. I was going to say, some of these are more podcast-friendly than others, Exactly. Probably. I think this would probably outrage our censors, but um, okay. I can say that it was a certain metaphor that he used where he described parts of the lover's anatomy as being like ballet dancers hovering on point. He beat out quite a notable list of other contenders this year. Other nominees included Ethan Kanan, who was nominated for a passage in The Doubter's Almanac, where he compares a sexual encounter to a brisk tennis game. (laughs) Other nominees included uh, Gail Foreman for Leave Me and Tom Connolly uh, for Men Like Air, which described a sex act involving chili peppers. So Mr. DeLuca is in good company this year. He's joining such illustrious writers as Norman Mailer, Haruki Murakami, 
Tom Wolfe and Michael Cunningham, who have all won this award in the past. So it was. I just want to backtrack for one second. It was a sex act involving Chili Peppers. It wasn't a sex act compared to Chili Peppers. Exactly. It wasn't a metaphor about Chili Peppers. Yes, okay, which good. is actually unusual. I think often the judges yeah, are of... looking for metaphors. That's one of the things that they tend to hone in on. Um, <laughs> it's worth actually quoting their criteria because this prize often induces snickers among people. And, um, you know, it's, it seems like a joke. It was, it was founded with a sort of sincere intent, mm. which is not, you know, necessarily to mock or punish writers, but to encourage writers to aspire to greater heights when they're describing sex That's acts. That's one way which, of looking at it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, really, they're using a stick instead of a carrot. Like, yeah. um, But <laughs> they, they claim that their goal is to celebrate good sex writing by by pointing those. out what doesn't exactly. work. It's one of those exercises. And so the judges have said in the past that the hallmarks of bad sex are, quote, broadly speaking, euphemism, confusion about what's actually going on, and the clumsy use of language, metaphor, and hyperbole. The couple of things that strike me about this award are, one, how many great writers have won it or been nominated for it. I wonder whether or not you can write really well about sex. I mean, obviously, people have Lawrence and people like that. But the more contemporary passages I read from this award, the more I think that Almost no one should try it. Everyone says it's one of the hardest things to write about, and yet it's unavoidable. I mean, there are so many plots where you really can't leave it out. And it was interesting to see um, how the judges wrestled with that question this year. There were some nominees um, or works that were under consideration but didn't become finalists that they actually passed on because they said the writing was too good. So one, Ian McEwan's Nutshell was one of those. Um, Jonathan Saffron Foyer's uh, Here I Am was considered but then deemed too good to really win the Bad Sex and Fiction Award. Well, they're going to have to try uh, a little worse next time. I think so. Thanks, Alexandra. Thank you. Vanity Fair magazine has a long history of giving famous authors an early leg up, including Dorothy Parker, A.A. A. Milne, Truman Capote, Mary McCarthy, and many others. The magazine has also specialized in authors writing about other authors who happen to be friends. The result has been decades of dishy, revealing pieces, and a new anthology, Vanity Fair's Writers on Writers, gathers the best. My colleague Matthew Schneier, a reporter and writer on staff here at The Times, reviewed it for us, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, Matt. Hi. I'm going to actually start by reading the opening of your review, which I enjoyed a great deal, and that'll kind of give us a little bit of lift off. So you write, A good working assumption, if you are a struggling young writer, dreaming of laurels but subsisting on lentils, is that those successful writers you envy are all off somewhere together, champagne drunk at a party to which your invitation has mysteriously not arrived. Vanity Fair's Writers on Writers, a collection of pieces from the magazine's modern incarnation, offers little to disprove this theory. So explain that. How did you finish this book, Feeling About Chumminess Among Writers? Well, you know, I should say that that uh, opening sentence actually comes from my memoirs. I was just able to repurpose it here, which is, uh, which is great. You know, I, I finished the book feeling, in fact, that, uh, that the great writers do all, you know, party somewhere together, that they know one another, they interact with one another, they actually do have um, the, the kind of scabrous anecdotes about one another that uh, that you'd be desperate to hear, and, and that in this book, they, they to some degree share with you. You know, I, this is one where I would be very happy to see the cutting room floor <laughs> sure. and the things that were deemed uh, too hot for publication, but I mean, you know, e- even to print, you got uh, Toni Morrison talking about Gabriel Garcia Marquez in Viagra, uh, you've got, you know, Elizabeth Bishop on Marianne Moore, you know, sort of primly seducing sailors on a uh, roller coaster. You know, <laughs> this is this is the stuff that I didn't get in uh, in college English 101. Is this and sort of cla- very happy to have. Is this classic Vanity Fair material? 
Is it classic Vanity Fair? I mean, is that the tone of Vanity Fair seducing people on roller coasters? Oh, I think so. I mean, especially rich people. But, uh, you know, the writers, I think, are on on the lower end of that spectrum. But, uh, but yeah, this to me felt very part and parcel of of a lot of what's great about Vanity Fair and the the sort of Carter administration. (laughs) Discuss the Carter, Graydon Carter, the editor, um, and discuss what you mean by the modern incarnation. These come from the magazine under his reign, I assume. Largely under his reign. So Vanity Fair, um, I think I'm getting this history right. I, I haven't actually refreshed myself uh, since I wrote the review, but uh, originally, originally was uh, an English magazine. The rights to it were bought by Condé Nast himself. We now think of Condé Nast as a company, but there actually was a Condé Nast. Uh, Mr. Nast brought over to the United States in 19 kind of 13, uh, relaunched here, a little bit of a shaky beginning, um, and then sort of relaunched properly in 1914 had a, a very successful August uh, early run where Dorothy Parker wrote for it. Uh, Mencken, I believe, wrote for You know, a lot of the, the kind of Algonquin greats would write for mm-hmm. it. It didn't survive as long as perhaps it should have, uh, I, I think because of, I don't know, wartime privations or something. It was relaunched in the early 80s. During uh, wartime, the glossy mags are the first to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, last in, first out. It was relaunched in the early 80s. Uh, not that under Graydon Carter, uh, he took it over in, I want to say, 1992. Think, and yeah. in fact, that's right. And since you know, this uh, present compilation, uh, Writers on Writers, uh, is a comp- collection of pieces from this the 1983 on, Graydon Carter actually edited an earlier uh, compendium of pieces from the original run, which is also great. But uh, but this is is kind of the 80s to the present and with a strong focus on um, on the pieces that have appeared in the magazine since the early 90s. Is it also a strong focus on both the subject and the writer of the profile being well-known, or is it mostly the subjects are really well-known and sometimes it's a writer who we might not have heard of? It, it definitely leans on its, its famous uh, contributors as well as famous subjects uh, and, and does some kind of uh, matchmaking in a sense. Um, I mean, within the book, you've got Truman Capote on Willa Cather. You've got Martin Amos on some. And Rushdie, uh, you've got one Michael other Lewis one. on Tom Wolfe. Michael Lewis on Tom Wolfe. Uh, I mean, they're they're all in there. James Walcott on Jack Kerouac. It is quite a bold face name table of contents. Uh, you know, Vanity Fair is a bold face name magazine. You know, the the one negative thing I have to say about the book is that I think oftentimes it chooses to include some sort of famous writers, even when their pieces, not that they're not great, but, uh, you know, very brief occasional pieces such as you might find, you know, on, on a quarter of a magazine page or a half of a magazine page. Mm. And yet when you read it now, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, you know, so-and-so's birthday tribute to <laughs> so-and-so in like 200 words – you know, maybe it doesn't give you as much as it gave you at the time. What about the meteor pieces? Do you have two or three favorites that really struck you as uh, really worthy of lasting? Absolutely. I mean, the uh, Elizabeth Bishop's um, memoir of her friendship with Marion Moore, um, the great poet on the great poet, um, is an incredible piece. And, and it, it's one that wasn't familiar to me. And in fact, it was a piece that was found nearly completed among her papers at her death and was actually was edited by uh, by her longtime friend and editor. Uh, for publication in Vanity Fair in in the early '80s, I believe, it's just an incredible piece of prose. Um, you know, we think of Bishop for for poetry rather than prose, but but she's an incredible prose writer. Um, you know, really wonderful details like the the sailors on the roller coaster. Um, Marion Moore takes her to the circus. Marion Moore loves the circus. Um, we know this, but uh, it was new to me that uh, Marion Moore had Elizabeth Bishop stand as a as a kind of lookout while she gave an elephant uh, an illegal haircut to restore an elephant hair bracelet she had. I mean, uh, elephant hair bracelets are new to me 
as a whole category. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but it had never occurred to me how you might repair one if you happen to have it. And if you're married more, you just take your nail scissors and go uh, give an elephant a trim. Well, well, you call it illegal here, but in the in the review, you coin, I think, a very elegant phrase, which is a larcenous elephant haircut. <laughs> That's also a new category to me. Uh, so Bishop on more, that makes sense, obviously, that that would be lasting. Uh, is there another that, that sticks out to you? Um, I was interested in the James Patterson profile because obviously he's not in the... He doesn't jump to mind in the Elizabeth Bishop class of poetry or prose stylists, but you did say that the the piece about him was was particularly interesting. Right. You know, he he's not in the pantheon. I don't think he's jockeying for a seat at the Algonquin Roundtable or or whatever its its successor is in 2016. Um you know, that's the kind of piece that I thought was, was a really clever piece of Vanity Fair to do and and to include because it's about an author who's a bestseller uh, by leaps and bounds, greater magnitude than, than many of the people that we either think of as great or think of as bestsellers. And, and he's really kind of a factory. I mean, James Patterson is now a man overseeing an empire of James Patterson books, which are uh, written in part by him and overseen by him. But, you know, in, in fact, is, is you know, kind of, uh, you know, what do you call it? It's like the, the trench coat full of squirrels or something. You <laughs> what's, know, what, the, what's the opposite of artisanal? Uh, exactly. It's exactly. A, it's um, group effort. Yeah, and 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 I think no worse for that. I mean, you know, James Patterson books are books that give a lot of people a lot of pleasure sure. to actually look at the process of that and the way he feels, the way he's dealt with, uh, you know, with criticism over the years. There have been plenty of writers taking pot shots at him, uh, and and he's very unbothered uh, in part, perhaps because he's very rich. But uh, <laughs> you know, that that was a piece that I thought was was terrific uh, and and a nice kind of lighter balance to pieces like William Styron's essay that eventually became Darkness Visible. You know. Mm-hmm. Memoir about um, depression and suicidal depression. You know, you, you've got a lot of sort of great writers pondering the great issues, but at the same time, you know, there's uh, there's pieces like you mentioned. There, there's a great profile of Jacqueline Suzanne, authoress of Valley of the Dolls. Uh, you know, and and just a kind of fabulous character um, who is even crazier, I think, off the pitch than on it. You, you say in the in the review that that she sincerely believes or fervently believed that she would win the Nobel Prize. Is fervently the same as sincerely? I think, if anything, it's stronger. Uh, you know, I, I think she sincerely believed with fervency. Is, is that the word I'm looking for? Um, I loved that. And, and you know, who the hell knows? Maybe, maybe she should have. Are there any pieces in here that surprised you or gave you a view to a writer who you thought you knew really well and you didn't or someone whose work you had kind of dismissed and then you thought, oh, maybe there's something more here than I than I allowed for? Yes, it, it certainly did and, and reminded me in some cases. I, I had somewhere lodged in the back of my mind that Dorothy Parker had left her, her estate to the NAACP, um, but there was there was a whole piece on it, and now I'm getting nervous that maybe it wasn't actually Dorothy Parker. But yes, it was, in fact, Dorothy Parker, and, and uh, the magazine sent Christopher Hitchens, one of its own great lights, to visit the, the, the kind of memorial that, uh, that the NAACP erected for her um, on account of this gift. Uh, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing where, you know, we all have a sort of three bullet points about Dorothy Parker that we remember, you know, men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses and, you know, the biting wit and what fresh hell is this. Um, <laughs> but I love that little peek, uh, the reminding peek into, you know, another part of her. This sounds like the kind of book that, given the season, would, would probably make a decent stocking stuffer for the literary types out there. I think that is probably its aim, uh, if I'm being honest, uh, and, and know the worst for that. I, I, you know, I think it's a great stocking piece. You know, one thing I kind of felt is it's not a book necessarily that you want to sit down and read cover to cover, but it's it's great to dip into. And, uh, you know, it, it would be a great way to avoid your family for discreet bursts over the holidays. Well, thanks for dipping into it with me. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> thanks, Chuck. Again, the book is Vanity Fair's Writers on Writers, edited by Graydon Carter and reviewed for us this week in the book review by Matt Schneier.
Greg Coles and Pamela Paul join me now to talk about what we're reading this week. Hi, guys. Hey, John. Hi, Pamela, let's start with you. What are you in the middle of? I see something open. All right. I'm going to rasp this one out. Pardon my voice. I'm reading a thriller that came out earlier this year called All Things Cease to Appear by Elizabeth Brundage. And um, it's it's a literary thriller, which I, I love because it means that it's sort of not only about that fast-paced and that what's going to happen next, but also about other things. And in this case, it's it's about marriage and about women within marriage. Um, and it does a few unusual things narratively that I really like. It starts off with George Clare, a professor um, of art history in upstate New York, who comes home, or does he, to find <laughs> his wife dead and their three-year-old daughter alone with her body. It's clear from the very beginning that George Clare is a suspect. And so you all along have a question in your mind, is it going to turn out to be the obvious suspect, George Clare, in which case it's kind of surprising because he was the obvious one, or will it be one of the many other characters in it who would not be obvious and therefore is surprising? And so just Having that question at work um, Mm -hmm. all along keeps you moving along in the story, um, which takes place also in an interesting setting, as a good thriller often does. In this case, it's the kind of depressed upstate New York where many of the farmers, dairy farmers in particular, have um, lost their farms. And so um, there's, again, that there's this tension between the expats from New York who've moved up from New York City who've moved up there and are displacing many of the old farming families. So I'm about midway through and eager to finish it. Well, we'll talk about it again next week, but you won't, you know, we'll have to have spoiler alerts. Yes. Greg, what about you? I started this week reading a novel that comes out in February. I I'm not going to talk about it, actually, that one, because I, I haven't enjoyed it that much. I'm, I'm sticking with it, but it's um, it's not out until February, and it, it, I'm not loving it. So um, I'll... It's diplomatic. Of yeah, I'll instead um, talk it's about... Like a podcast subtweet. <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, what the hell, Greg? What's coming out in February? <laughs> What's the book? I'm going to instead talk about a novel very much in the escapism line um, that uh, is a writer who'd long been recommended to me um, and has been sitting on my shelf and I've I've never read. This is a novel that came out in 1978 um, by a writer named Laurie Colwin. It's um, called Happy All the Time. It's utterly charming. It's it's a romance. It's a um, story about a marriage. Um, it relies a lot on this very kind of witty banter um, between the, the characters. There are four principal characters, and really it, it ends up being um, about the marriage of two of them, Vincent and Misty. Their dialogue is kind of a throwback to like the madcap comedies, uh, you know, the the Cary Grant type, you know, his, his girl, girl Friday. Friday yes, it, it's, it's very much um, like that. Um, and and she's just a a lovely, charming writer. She died young um, of cancer. She's also famous for some. Um, cookbooks or books about food that she did, kind of an MFK Fisher type thing. Mm-hmm. The Lori Colwin is more overtly comic than than MFK Fisher was. She puts me a little bit in mind of like a David Lodge, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that kind of um, small world type uh, comedy. It's, it's, you know, this this broader comedy. So that's what I've been reading. How about you, John? Uh, well, I read um, four books recently for for 
work, I have a review up uh, online now of, of four new fiction books, and two of them really stood out to me. One is a collection of stories that actually you alerted me to called We Show What We Have Learned by a writer named Claire Beams, and this is her first collection. Um, some of these stories are kind of have a, a very subtle form of magical realism where very bizarre things are happening, but she's not really emphasizing them that strongly, <laughs> which is kind of a nice tone. Um, I, but there are a couple of realistic stories that I thought were just fantastic, including one um, about a young boy who's helping his mother run this sort of sham home for for people who come and try to get healed in this marsh. You know, they have limps or sores or something, and they come and and, uh, spend time in this marsh thinking that that it will heal them. And he sort of falls in love with this one uh, woman who shows up at the at the home. Um, and then there's another one set during the time of the Great Plague. Her, her imagination is very wide-ranging, and um, that's about two sisters, one of whose husband is a doctor during the time of the spread of the Great Plague. Um, the other one is the uh, wonderfully titled Schlump, uh, which is the title character in a 1928 novel about World War One that was written anonymously by Hans Herbert Grimm? Also a great name. <laughs> yes, also a great name. The author and the and the character. The book is a is, is a sort of one of those odd comedic anti-war books. There's a lot of like genteel picaresque adventures that Schlump goes through, and there are very harrowing battle scenes in the middle of the book. But on either side of those are sort of lighter and but always with obviously the war in the background and, and the absurdity of that um, kind of like the that classic The Good Soldier Spec by Yaroslav Hasek the backstory of the book is really I think should be a book in itself so someone should write it um, here's the idea which is that it was published anonymously in the late 1920s it was completely overshadowed by All Quiet on the Western Front which obviously got a ton of attention and was became a classic pretty instantly but Grimm wanted to maintain his anonymity because he was a teacher and he liked his life and he didn't want to be punished for being anti-war. So during the time the Nazis were burning the book in the 1930s, he sort of kept a low profile by just not admitting that he was the writer. He buried a copy of the book in the wall of his house, which was found in 2013, which is how it was rediscovered. He worked for the Nazis as an interpreter during World War II, also to try to keep his cover out of a kind of you know subterfuge, and then was punished for that after the war by having his teaching job taken away and then uh, committed suicide in 1950. So uh, just a crazy 20th century um, life and story. So I'd like to see that told in full sometime. So some industrious writer out there, get on that. And in the meantime, thanks for joining me, guys. And thank you, John, for your excellent and much needed substitute hosting. Oh, my pleasure. But get better soon. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. <laughs>